So today uh, is kind of a bittersweet day. We're concluding our Summer Psalms series. Uh, It's very sad. I've really enjoyed the Psalms, but we're moving on to something new, which is going to be exciting. Um, And while we're ending the Summer Psalms, the summer weather is certainly sticking around. And the final Psalm this morning that we're going to be concluding our series with is Psalm chapter 66. And this is a psalm which we're uncertain who the author is. We don't uh, really know. We do know from the heading that this was for the music director, meaning that this was a a psalm that was likely used in worship services. So that would be like writing a song and saying, this is for Paul DeMano to use during corporate worship. So this was probably a a song that was sung altogether uh, in, in Jewish worship. And I believe that something uh, special is highlighted in this psalm, a special aspect that it sort of hones in on, and that is that all of the earth should see and hear the works of God and praise him. All of the earth. If you have breath in your lungs, it is your joyous duty to look for the workings of God around you towards mankind and to praise him for it. I believe God is revealed as the one who works awesomely towards mankind and invokes our praise. If there's a goal for this morning, it is to challenge each and every one of us to intentionally look for the workings of God so we can do what we were born to do and praise him and praise him with our mouths. This message is is so important Remember the description of sin in Romans chapter 1, verses 21? It is that they sort of knew God and saw his works, but they did not acknowledge him nor thank him. They did not rejoice in his works. They did not cry out in thanksgiving for the things that he had done. Friends, the work of the Lord demands and calls for our praise, from praise from all of the earth. His enemies owe him praise for his works. His church certainly owes him praise for his works. And each and every one of us personally owe him praise for his works as well. And so, um, this message is to encourage us to look for the works of God and to praise him. And it can seem kind of general. And, and when, sometimes when things are general, we tend to tune out a little bit. But, but I've always said that the most obvious points are often the most missed and the most profound. And I believe that's the case here this morning as well. You see, there are layers behind the praise that we're to be giving God. And these seemingly obvious points are actually very profound. And I believe God wants to help uh, transform our lives through the power of his word as we look at Psalm 66. And I believe he's going to surprise us with a few of these points. He's going to surprise us with these works that he is doing that we should be praising him for as we jump in. And so while it could be easy to sort of tune this out, oh, of course we should look for works and praise God, I encourage you to actually uh, lean into this and to get excited about this because, again, praising God is our purpose. So what I'm going to do now is, um, if you're able, you can all stand, and we're going to uh, read the scriptures together, and we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the deep truths of this psalm. 
So let's read Psalm 66. God's word says this. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will pretend to obey you. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name, Selah. Come and see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds towards the sons of mankind. He turned the sea into dry land. They pass through the river on foot. Let's rejoice there in him. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. The rebellious shall not exalt themselves. Selah. Bless our God, you peoples, and sound his praise abroad, who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. For you have put us to the test, God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You have brought us into the net. You have laid an oppressive burden upon us. You made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you brought us into a place of abundance. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay my vows, which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat animals with the smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats. Selah. Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell of what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was exalted with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But God has heard. He has given attention to the sound of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his favor from me. Let's pray. Dear Lord, God, we come to you now. And we ask for you to do a work in us, Lord, that we may praise you, as this psalm says, for the works that you're doing towards mankind. Holy Spirit, would you be the true teacher? Would you allow us to understand these truths, God, and to be transformed by them and to bring ourselves into the submission of your word? Oh, Lord, we we pray that you would be pleased to do this work and that your name would be glorified in this place. God, do this now, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So there are uh, several fascinating things that I noticed about this psalm, different facets. The first thing I noticed is that throughout all the text, there's a constant uh, beckoning for everyone to praise. It's mentioned in verse 1, it's mentioned in verse 4, in verse 8, bless our God and sound his praise abroad. There is a clear call or a beckoning to worship. And and that's interesting. They're singing. This is, remember, this was sung in a corporate setting. They're singing about how they should be singing. That's kind of interesting. Loudly and publicly to make his praise known. And again, this is the joyous duty of, of of every human person, everyone who's experienced the workings of the Lord. And the next thing I noticed is that indeed the psalmist talks about the workings of the Lord. He gives them reasons to praise. He doesn't just call them to praise. He calls them to look at God's works and praise him for what he's doing. He gives reasons. He says praise him for the deeds among man. And if we want to praise God correctly, then we need to focus on his actions towards mankind. In fact, verse 3, that's directly what what it tells us to do. It says, say to God, how awesome are your works. 
See, praise is characterized not by a feeling or, or by things that we do primarily. It's primarily characterized by who he is and what he has done. Verse 5 indicates the praise for God's work uh, too. It, it mentions it there. It says, come and see. Come and see the works of God, his deeds towards mankind. Verse 16, come and hear what God has done for my soul. You see, God is the main character of this psalm. And so we need to keep that in mind as well. And, and the last thing I sort of noticed was something very interesting. And it happens towards the end of the psalm. Around verse 13, there's a shift from sort of this corporate singing about God to a, sort of a personal praise from maybe one individual worshiper. The psalmist begins to use the first person pronoun, I, in verse 13. And verse 16 as well sort of parallels verse 5. He's saying, come and see. And now he's saying, come and hear what the Lord has done for me. And there's a big personal aspect of praise and worship that is highlighted here as well. And so we can learn a lot about why we should praise God for his works and what that praise should look like. And so I've broken the text down into three points. First, we're going to look at the call to the universal praise of God, that every man, every woman should be praising God, a call to it. Then we're going to look at the works of God towards mankind that are mentioned all throughout the text. And lastly, we'll focus in on where the shift takes place and where we start to see personal praise lifted up to the Lord and what that means individually for you and I. And so let's get into this. Let's first look at this call of universal praise to God. Verse 1 says this, it says, shout joyfully all the earth. And then verse 4, it mentions the earth again. It says, all the earth will worship you. Notice the scope of this is all of the earth. This is the duty of every single person who is alive. Everyone who has breath in their lungs should be praising the Lord. This is a universal call for all the earth to acknowledge who God is. And here is, is what, what that call is. It's a call to shout. A call that is to be heard. The praise of God, again, it's not something we should be embarrassed about. It's not something we should sort of um, only quietly do in our heart. Certainly we should. But it's something proclaimed. We proclaim who the Lord is. It's to be public and known. And I know sometimes there are those quiet moments of personal worship. But quite honestly, this was sung in a corporate setting. This is Psalm 66, paints a picture of a praise that is heard. One that sort of um, causes everyone around to notice who God is and what his works are. That, again, that idea of come and see, come and, come and hear what God has done. We know that it's actually, and I think in verse 9, it says to make those praises abroad. This is quite honestly, singing about what God has done. And it's, the, it's, it's supposed to be in the heart of every single person. All of the earth is called to be doing this, to be recognizing who God is. And friends, we need to be careful that, that we're doing the same, that we're following this call, that we're praising God unashamedly, that we're declaring who he is because he is due public praise. Sometimes we feel very excited about football games, right? And we'll shout for joy when, when the Patriots 
get a, get a score today when they get a touchdown, right? And then sometimes when it comes to God, we're quiet because, you know, we don't want to um, mention him. But you know what the scripture says? It says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The tongue and the mouth and making, making vows with your mouth. All this, this psalm has a lot of language about speaking the praise of God. And that's something that we should be doing as well. We should not be ashamed to declare his glory. When you're at work and those around you aren't saved, oh, and this might be controversial, when you're at Thanksgiving dinner, <laughs> you should not be ashamed to talk about the Lord. He's done too much good for us not to praise him and to shout his praise. And again, notice the demeanor, the, the, uh, uh, the, the spirit that is captured uh, while this praise is taking place. Nearly every translation says, shout joyfully. It's, in, it's, it's, it's done joyfully. It's not a begrudging praise. It's a praise that actually sees God as good and delights in it. It's jubilant. It's celebratory. It's indicative of a thankful heart. And this is what we're called to. This is what all the earth is called to do, to celebrate our Lord, to celebrate God who has revealed himself. You know, God didn't need to create us so we could praise him. He was perfectly fine as a triune God, perfectly happy in himself. We get to praise him. That's good news, that he has opened, opened that, that, that whole idea of joyful praise of him. He's opened that and invited each and every one of us into that. I pray we don't miss that opportunity. Friends, those of you who are apathetic, you must reckon with this psalm this command to shout joyfully for all the earth to do it, you must, you must bring your feelings of apathy under, under the reality of who God is and order them appropriately. And later, I think the psalm gives us tools to do this by, by recognizing his works. But for now, let's look again at this description of, of just praise generally, this call to praise the second verse says, sing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious. And so we see this idea of glory or glorious mentioned in verse two, two times. Again, this word has to do with like honor or weightiness. This word is often associated with kingship. Part of praise is understanding the weightiness of his name. It says, sing the glory of his name. And Ancient Jews knew the name to be more than just a word, but it points and represents the true character. The true character. They shall sing the glory of his name. That is, the praise is weighty. And all of the praise should reflect who he in fact is. It should reflect his character and his nature. The praise should be glorious. It should be praise fit for a king. It should be loud and joyful, yes, but it should be honorable and true. Again, we're not, uh, there's a weightiness to praising God. We want to praise him for true things. We're not just emotional. We're rejoicing who he is, the king of kings. There is an honor 
associated as well. The same way we stand and we honor the flag, how much more should that whole idea and that spirit be present when we're worshiping our Lord? It's, it's not, you know, the, the joy and the honor aren't mutually exclusive, friends. It's both and. Make his praise glorious and weighty and, it, and make it true. You know, sometimes our praise is all so emotional and it's, it's actually not even really about God anymore. But we should be singing about his name, bringing glory to his name, saying things that are true of him, singing of his truth and excellence of his character. Again, when we're praising God, it's not primarily about nice feelings, though they may be graciously present, and I think they're actually, to some extent, supposed to be there, but it's also to be coupled with the fact that what we're saying about God is actually true, and it's honoring and bringing glory to his name. You see, the joyous praise, again, from verse 1, not to be separated from this glorious praise of verse 2. We are singing praise to the king for who he actually is, not who we just think he is or want him to be. And I want my praise to be true. That's, that's why the, the reading the scriptures is so important. That's why singing songs that align with who God really is is so, so important. And here in this psalm, this is an invitation to honor his name, to sing about who he really is and not just who we want him to be to make us feel good. And so we see this aspect come out in in verse 2, that true praise, it's a call to, to rejoice, but it's a call for the praise to be glorious, to bring glory to his name. Next, we see that even the enemies of God have to acknowledge his majesty. Again, all of the earth is is going to praise him. might look different for different people, but all of the earth will recognize the glory of his name. It says, say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of your greatness, the greatness of your power, your enemies will pretend to obey you. Then again, verse 4, I I didn't put it here, but verse 4, right after, sort of reiterating the point, all of the earth will worship and all will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. And then there's a selah, a call to contemplate. Every human being will bow. And now here in verse, verse 3, we see Again, what, what we should be saying to God, you know, how awesome are your works, it says. And then after it says, because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will pretend to obey you. Even the enemies of the Lord must submit to recognizing how powerful he is. Other translations say his enemies will cringe before him. That might capture the idea a little better. The idea is that as Even though they're enemies, they cannot ignore the sovereign rule of the Lord. They simply cannot. They must obey simply because the works of the Lord are too great because of the greatness of your power. Imagine a colossal, unstoppable avalanche roaring down the mountains. 
Its sheer force and power is undeniable. And no matter how hard you try to resist it, you're not outrunning that kind of power. And here, in the same way, if your heart is hard towards God, if you're rejecting his rule, if you don't want to sing his praises, friends, the reality is you can't outrun him. He is too great. It says in Scripture, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. No exceptions. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Again, friends, this call to praise, it's not optional. All the earth will praise. All the earth will declare the glorious truth about the King of kings, Jesus Christ, and acknowledge his name and his character. So here are our options. One, we can either shout joyfully now, realizing this king loves us and is for us, or we can declare who he is terrified as they do in verse 3. But in either case, it's clear we will all proclaim who he is. As verse 1 says, all of the earth, reiterated in verse 4, all of the earth, even the enemies, no one can stop his rule. All the earth will praise. It cannot be avoided. Even the enemies of God cringe before him. And it signifies his great majestic rule. So I pray that with those two options, we choose the first. We take joy in who he is and praise his name and shout joyfully instead of terrified as they do in verse 3. And so there is the general call to praise. And now the psalmist begins to talk about the works of the Lord. He's giving us things to fund our praise. Here's what he says in verse 5. Verse 5, he says, Come and see the works of the Lord, who is awesome in his deeds towards the Son of mankind. The sons of mankind. Recall verse 3. It explicitly said in verse 3 that we, what we are to say, and we are to, to say, and to God, how awesome are his works. We are to declare the awesomeness of what he is doing. And now here in verse 5, he's reiterating it, and he's shifting in a little bit deeper now. And he's even saying that, hey, his, his works of creation, yes, but specifically his works towards the sons of mankind. That is, how he is actively interacting with you and I right now. That's what we can praise him for. He's, he's giving us things to fund our worship of who he is. God and his grace works among men. And that ought to necessarily invoke genuine thankful praise if we truly understand what that means. And the psalmist knows this, and that's why he's inviting people now to see the works of God, to come and see what he's doing among men. The psalmist knows we have an obligation to, to praise, and now he's giving reasons to praise, and he's rooting them in God's own work towards man. Rooting them in the revelation of God's character to us through his own workings. Come and see, says the psalmist. Find reasons to praise him based on what he's done in human history. And the Lord has indeed revealed great works to us of how he has acted. And if we understand 
what this means, oh, it should invoke praise in our hearts that we can even understand the great God, the majestic, infinite God acts towards mankind. He wants us to know who he is. He interacts with us, though he does not need to. Oh, and we should be praising him for this, that we can know him and praise him as we're designed to do. And now, friends, we have been given the greatest revelation, the greatest interaction towards mankind, the greatest work among humanity. We have experienced the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, the fullness of God in human form, the work of salvation on the cross. We have seen God act towards mankind through his work on the cross. And this work that Christ has done should fund our praise for all eternity. It, it is a true praise. It is a glorious praise, and it is a praise that we can joyously shout. The praise of Jesus Christ, I believe, is the culmination of all this psalm is talking about. Jesus Christ is the great fulfillment of the being that we should be praising. And I think uh, we'll, we'll see this come out. I pray that we would open our Bibles and, and be obsessed with this person of Christ and see the works that he has done. And as, as I go on and talk about these works of God, I want us to think about how this looks in the New Testament and how Christ does a lot of these works in a visible way that we can see, we can come and see, and then we can praise. Oh, this is, this is exciting. All right. Here we see, first, this work of salvation. We see that God has done a salvation work that funds praise. The first thing he says about the works of, of God towards mankind, verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Let's rejoice there in him. The psalmist is inviting people to see these works of God, and now he's recalling specific events in the history of, of Israel. And undoubtedly, one of the first things that would come to mind for any Jew would be to reflect on this massive work that took place, this massive work of salvation at the Red Sea. And that's done in the first part of verse 6. Picture this, the enormous armies of Egypt with their chariots are chasing down God's people. And there is no human escape. They're cornered. They are at the Red Sea. Nowhere to run. Human inability is what characterized the Israelites. Need of an intervention. Need of salvation. And then God acts. He splits the sea, and they cross on dry land, a deliverance and a salvation that can only be attributed to the work of God. And likewise, they, the psalmist alludes to the Jordan River, the whole nation passed on foot, and they were granted entry into the promised land, not because of their works or their brilliance. Remember, they spent 40 years in the desert wandering around because they were afraid that they and their power could not take the land. And then Joshua comes on the scene, and they all remember, wait a minute, our God is great. We can take this land. And then God begins to act. Again, human inability, God acting 
and it invokes praise. This is what comes to mind for the ancient Jew as they think about God acting among humankind and human history. You see, God's ability to save and fulfill when man is unable, unable is highlighted as something that makes God praiseworthy. And what is interesting is that the psalmist is writing this many years after this has, these events have taken place and transpired, but he's inviting everyone in his present age to rejoice there in him. Do you see that? The psalmist says, he turned the sea into dry land, they passed through the river on foot, let's rejoice there in him. He wants, he wants to recognize these past acts of salvation and praise God for his workings in human history, inviting everyone in his present age there. The psalmist knows, why, why does he do this? Because the psalmist knows that the deeds of salvation in the past for Israel then reflect his unchanging character even in their moment in history. That he is still worthy to be rejoiced in as the God of salvation. You see, God, what God is doing, why we're looking at his works to make his praise glorious, it's because he's revealing who he is to us. His unchangeable character. His great salvation. And, and the psalmist is inviting those in the present to praise God for who he is. A savior. One... one uh, commentator says this, God's work is never antiquated. It is all a revelation of eternal activities. What he has been, he is. What he did, he does. Therefore, faith may feed on all the records of old time and expect the repletion of all that they contain. Friends, we have been given an account of what God has done in human history, and it's found oftentimes on our shelves. Oh, that we would open it up and see these great things and, and may it cause us to, to praise him and rejoice in him and who he is. And again, I said to keep in mind Christ. Oh, what a great salvation we have in Christ. We ourselves were cornered into sin, awaiting the Father's wrath. We could do nothing to save ourselves, yet God, the God who saved Israel, who made a way for them, has made a way for us in Christ. Oh, that we would praise his name for the great salvation he has provided us. And that he has fulfilled promises in Christ. Oh, this is all God's work and it demands our praise. Let's praise him together, friends, for his salvation. Next we see... God's work and his mighty rule also funds our praise. Verse 7, he rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. The rebellious shall not exalt themselves. Selah. Certainly, uh, the Lord's deliverance of Israel by such a miraculous means uh, is supposed to contrast the weakness of these other nations. That is the work highlighted in salvation and kindness towards his, his people. That's, that's true. But also in verse 7, what's highlighted is the foolishness of na nations that try to rebel against God. And we've already seen this earlier, actually, in, in verse 3. They just have to obey him. They have to. His rule is a work that we can praise him for. They cannot exalt themselves. And then there's that another, another pause to contemplate Selah. 
to think about the sovereignty of our Lord, the, the, the ultimate rule that he in fact has, to meditate on his powerful rule and his might. The psalmist says his power over the nations and his might, it says, is forever. Again, this happened in the past, these moments with the Egyptians and, and all, all of this past history, it's all in the past, but his might and his rule, that's a part of his character. And that remains steadfast, unchangeable for all of eternity and therefore is a reason to praise him. To praise his rule, we too can pause and contemplate for a moment who's really in charge, even now. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can pause and say, Lord, we know who's really in charge. As we contemplate the nations, as we contemplate Russia, as we contemplate the Middle East and the USA and, and all of these, these uh, big wigs who, who think they're running things, we know really who's in charge. He sees it all. And those who rebel against the Lord's rule will not exalt themselves, it says. For he alone is the true ruler of all the earth. As we already mentioned, every knee will bow, every tongue confess, you cannot rebel against the great avalanche of God. And this, friends, is, is given as a reason to praise him. His works among mankind. He rules it. That's his work. He rules it all. And he has revealed his mighty rule. He has revealed his mighty rule ultimately in Jesus Christ. He has given, the Father has given all things to Christ. Christ is the ruler. Ephesians 1.21 makes it clear. He has been given all rule, authority, power, and dominion. He's the ruler. He's the revelation of who God is. He's the being who we can look to and finally worship and understand. The earth and all that is in it, the, the visible and the invisible, the heavens even, according to Colossians, is not just made through Christ, it certainly is, but it is made for Christ. He's the ruler. The entirety of creation sits under his might. Friends, we can praise God for his mighty rule and that, has, and that this great mystery of God has been revealed through Jesus Christ who is forever seated on a throne, who can never be dethroned, who no rebellion can dethrone. The full revelation of God, the full might, and he is worthy of praise. You know it says in Revelation 5.12 that he was slain to receive power, to receive dominion, and it cannot be taken from him. The great gift of, from the Father to the Son. What a beautiful mystery that has been revealed to us. Next, we see that God's work uh, is in preserving his people and that that too can fund our praise. Here we see another explicit call to praise. Bless our God, you people, and sound his praise abroad. Again, vocally, talking about it. And what are we talking about? We're not talking about how great we are right? or our deeds, we're talking about the one who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. The one who is preserving us. Who is steadfastly, not only is he ruling, and, and he's a, some harsh ruler, but to those who are his, he is ruling for us. 
He is giving us life, keeping us in life, not allowing our feet to stumble. Oh, and our dependence on him, that's what should be shouted and vocalized. That's, that's what we're to, to, to be singing abroad. According to this text, it's, we're not vocal about our intellect or our problem solving or self-preservation. We're vocal about the God who saves us, the God who preserves us. Another gift which invokes life. And um, this next point sort of goes hand in hand with this because I believe to some extent this is how he can do that work in us when it's talking um, about refining. It's, I, I, this next point, and this is a very interesting point. When we're thinking about praising God for his rule and for who he is, we think of all the nice things that he does for us. But God uh, also does some, some pretty interesting things. And you know what? We need to praise him. We need to praise him for his works among mankind, even when sometimes it just feels like fire. Oh, we need to praise him for his refining. Verse 10, for you have put us to the test, God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You have brought us into the net. You have laid an oppressive burden upon us. This point is very profound. The psalmist actually spends quite a long time on this point. You see, he, he preserves us through salvation. Yes, we preserve, we have life. Yes, indeed. But another work of God in mankind is this sanctifying work, this, this refining work that he is doing. And this is, again, I think not at all unrelated to the previous verse. This is perhaps how he keeps our foot from slipping. This is important, and indeed, it is describing a reason we should praise him. I pray we don't miss it. Praise him that he doesn't leave us the way we are. He begins, you have refined us as silver is refined. This process involved heat. One would purify silver through the intensity of fire, through, through heat. The impurities would then melt away and you would be left with the pure silver. But to do so again, it required fire. Or the second analogy says, you brought us into the net, says the scripture. That's interesting. Imagine being like a fish and you're just swimming freely inside of the ocean and then a net. Enclosed. You feel trapped. You feel trapped by what's happening around you. So not only is it intense heat, but, but you're trapped. You're stuck there. Then the, the third thing he says, he says, you made affliction on our backs. There are heavy things that are weighing us down. Oppressive, according to the text. Things are, are burdensome and they're put on us. And we feel crushed by what's happening. He goes on even more. Then it says, he caused men to ride over our heads. We are trampled. We used to have equal footing or, or better footing, and now our enemies are trampling over us. It goes on. We went through fire and water. Sort of saying, we have been through it all. We've been through the chaos of the ocean and the massive waves, and we have been in the fire. That is, there is no adversity that has been kept from us. Now, I want to note something very difficult here. 
but I must say it because the text demands it. These seemingly terrible descriptions are according to the text describing God's work. God's work. Did you notice all that you have and you made language? He's talking about what God's doing. And this is what we're we're supposed to be praising him for. Remember, this is a point that's supposed to be invoking praise. It's about praising God for his works, according to verse 3 and and verse 5. This is about praising God as, as we notice what he's doing. And here in verses 10 to 12, these things seem to qualify. Friends, the bad things we experience, what some have called the dark nights of the soul, are in fact great gifts, reasons to praise God. I want us to pause and think about that because if we can get this, we can can become mature. We can grow so much if we understand this point. That in all circumstances, I can praise him. This is the secret that perhaps Paul was referring to, whether he has a little or a lot, whatever he's going through, he can praise God. He's content. I pray that we recognize this as well. What God is doing, friends, the bad things we experience, again, things to contemplate. We can praise God for the refining work he's doing. He's not doing it for no reason. He's not doing it because he wants to give you a bad day. He's doing it to make us into the image of Christ whom we love. The difficult things that you're going through. Oh, God has a plan for them. Look at what it says at the very end. It says, yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. It's not in vain. And so we can praise him for what he's doing. We don't have to be depressed as the world is depressed. We know, as it says in Romans 8, all things are working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Do you believe this truth? Because if you do, you should praise him for it. I, th- I feel today, well, when we begin to thank God and praise him for trials, I think at that point we've grown. We're no longer spiritual gluttons seeking pleasure. You're no longer a beginner. You're one who sees God and sees what he's doing. The unchanging God, you understand who he is, and you just worship him. Oh, I pray we get there. I pray we get there. That's what the kingdom looks like. That's what the kingdom looks like, friends. And look at, again, that goodness. He's bringing us to that place of abundance. Do you trust him with what he's doing in your life right now? Yeah, you're in fire. Yeah, you're in a net. But do you know he's bringing you to a place of abundance? And so you can still worship him in that net. You can still worship him in that fire. You can still praise him for his rule Yes, his refining rule over his people. This is the sanctification we experience in this too. You know what it says in Titus? That It says in Titus chapter 3, it says that because of Christ's work, the Spirit of God, the being that does the sanctifying in us, was poured out abundantly. Oh, what a reason to worship Christ again, even in this great refining. 
and a guaranteed place of abundance, an eternal state where he will wipe away every tear. Oh, trust it. Put your hope in it, friends. Put your hope in Christ. I pray we praise him even for this refinement that we can look at troubles we've experienced now and in the past and say, God, you have brought me here to refine me. Thank you. And so with this, the psalmist goes into the personal praise. The pronoun I comes into the picture. Before this, it's like a corporate song. Everyone's singing together. And now this has been likened to a solo by some preachers. The psalmist is singing and praising God about the works God is specifically doing in his own life. The switch from corporate acknowledgement of God to a personal acknowledgement of God for the works done personally. Starting verse 13. And we know, again, God is big enough to do works in the nations, but he is also personal enough to, as we sang this morning, have you on his mind. To work in your life, specifically. Those who feel insignificant, this is really a profound point. The God of the whole universe, whose rule is so great and so powerful, is working in your life. I pray that we learn this, that we can sing along with the psalmist, have our own solos ready, so to speak, for this sweet moment of personal public worship of our Lord. A commentator put it, put it this way, he says, we picture the scene of public worship in which the corporate praises gives way to the single worshiper. His care is not only worldwide, nationwide, but it is personal. I will tell the Lord has done for me. And that's exactly what it says in verse 16. Come and, and hear what the Lord not has done in the nations this time. For me, the personal God works for you. He does not need to. He's not entitled. You're not entitled to him. He's not a genie, as we will see later on. But he does in his grace. Oh, what a reason to praise. Verse 13, I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat animals with the smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats. Selah. And so we see here that, the, that personal praise, it's not just shouting. Certainly, it, it involves publicly declaring what God has done for you. It's not merely personal, right? We want to tell of his wonders. That's what's going on here. Come in here. But also, it's more than just saying things about God. It is thanking God with sacrifice of, 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 of our lives. Look at what he's doing. He's taking the animals and burnt offerings. He's saying, God, you have done something for me. You have worked in my life. So here, I offer you something. I offer you something, God. Take a sacrifice. It's the least that I could give. And this, friends, is true personal praise. There is no true personal praise without it. We must sacrifice in return in thanksgiving if we've truly understood His work in our lives. He's do that. How could we not if we understand the immensity of who He is and the fact that He's doing something? How could we not sacrifice something to Him? And truly understand that point. And so 
The psalmist offers personal sacrifice. And, and friends, how much more should we respond? We have experienced such a marvelous personal touch from the Lord. We have experienced a great personal work of salvation. Each and every one of us have stories after story of the Lord's actions in our lives. And that great action of salvation. And it's personal. It demands that we give something back to him. How, how could we not? How could we be thankless? You know, this isn't, by the way, it talks about vows here, and we'll talk about that a little later on when we talk about the sincerity of the heart and, and, and what that means. But to, in one sense, it's our duty to respond this way. But that is not mutually exclusive with thanksgiving either. How can we not? This is just a thankful action. You know what it says in Romans chapter 12? In Romans 12, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, this is in the light of the gospel, of all of the good theology that came before about Jesus. He says, In light of this, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service. This is the response of someone who has seen and experienced God working in their lives. Again, he doesn't just um, work in our lives in a vague way. He changes us. He gives us thankful hearts. He makes us into into his image. And that's going to involve sacrifice. That's going to involve laying your life down, being a slave to righteousness, as the Apostle Paul might put it. And friends, this is freedom. This is good. This is good. For us, he has done everything. And so we should be willing to sacrifice our whole lives to him. We no longer do animal sacrifices to show thanksgiving because that was put to an an end. But Romans 12, we can be a living sacrifice. God, what do you want me to do today? How high do you want me to jump? I'll do it. I'll do whatever you want. And so friends, the sacrifice that we make is going to involve opening the word, finding out what God wants us to do. And then by the power of his Holy Spirit working in us, doing it. Oh, and it's it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. We also see that personal praise involves a proclamation of our need for him. Verse 16, come and hear all who fear God and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth and he was exalted with my tongue. Interestingly, we see the psalmist now, he's inviting everyone into his testimony. Hear what God's doing in my life, this personal testimony, and here's what he says. I cried to him with my mouth. That's all I did. All I did was say, God, I need you. I cried to him with my mouth, and then it says, and he was exalted with my tongue. Perhaps he was exalted by the very cry. Perhaps, again, in the the making of, of the vows when he was distressed, uh, this was mentioned earlier in the psalm. Perhaps is, is this God, I, just, I need you to do something. I need you to act in my life. And it's clear here that the dependent party is always going to be the one crying out to the superior party, right? This, this crying out with the tongue, according to the text, I think is, is saying that this very crying out is exalting God. Earlier in the text, verse 13b and 14, the psalmist says says the personal praise he offers stems from a time when he was in in distress. 
And the Lord answered him, verse 13, I shall pay my vows which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. The psalmist had a personal problem. He needed salvation personally. He needed God's interaction. And though he was small and insignificant, the God of the whole universe saw that and didn't need his bulls or rams. God is not like, oh, wow, that vow, I guess I'll do it because I really like rams. That's not what God's doing. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, okay? He's hearing a sincere, desperate cry and responding to it, okay? That's, that's what's going on. And now the psalmist is rejoicing that God has acted and that he's paid his vows. And he says this, I cried out and it exalted. I cried out. You know, if you're really going to cry out, to that being that you actually, you're going to cry out to a being that's actually, you believe, is going to help, right? I'm not going to, if I'm like in distress, I'm not going to go up to my cat and start crying to it for help because it's not capable of doing anything, right? And so what's happening is as the psalmist is saying, I'm in distress, I cried out to you, what he's really doing is he's declaring God as one who is able to save him. And so he's exalting God with his mouth, you see? Because he believes that God is able. And in this case, it is God who the psalmist is crying out to. And this very crying out is indicative of personal praise. Friends, we need to learn to cry out better. That's been a theme. I think it was in Psalm 38. This idea of just like, God, I can't handle it. But you can. You know, that's what we're designed for that kind of dependence, being like children to enter the kingdom of, the, uh, kingdom of heaven, people who can't do anything but just cry out to him. You see, true personal praise requires us to come to the end of ourselves. Otherwise, what we're really doing is praising ourselves. It requires us to run out of options, so to speak, and to cry out with our mouths to God who is able, to depend on him to save us because he's so great. And it is his glory to display that salvation and that greatness in our weakness. It's personal. I called to him with my mouth. He was exalted with my, my tongue. He saved me. This proclamation is, is a proclamation of personal weakness. And friends, if you're going to praise God in the way you're supposed to, in a way that is to the glory of his name and not yours, we need, to, we need to go there. We need to come to the end of ourselves and recognize we can do nothing. Oh, I pray that if you're in this room, that you, you're, you're getting there. Oh, that you're realizing you need a Savior. Oh, and you would call out to him this morning, I pray. And so we see this point here, that personal praise involves a sincere heart. A sincere heart. Here's also what is going on during that cry. And this is, by the way, a commentary on, on the Lord responding to cries. So he's elaborating. He's going deeper into that. Not unrelated. This is all related to what we talked about. And he says this, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But God has heard. He has given attention to the sound of my prayer. And then he praises God personally again with his mouth. Blessed be God 
It, he ends on this personal note of praise. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his favor from me. Look what happens. The Lord responds to the psalmist. And this causes in verse 20 the psalmist to personally praise God saying, Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his favor from me. That is, God heard and has done some action revealing himself and his personal work in the psalmist, and now the psalmist is praising him for it. Our job, friends, is just to praise. It's just to praise. Now, now what truly caused this uh, personal praise to go forth? It seems the psalmist, again, he's commenting on this cry that he made And the psalmist wants the sincerity of his heart to be highlighted while he's calling out to God. The sincerity of his heart. Verse 18, it's it's clear the psalmist writes that the Lord will not hear if he is regarding wickedness in his heart. That is, if the psalmist was crying out to God, God, save me, I need you, God, I don't know what to do. But in his inner man, that's what the heart language is referring to there, is what he really wants is sin. Oh, God's not fallen for it. He's, he's God, you know God's omniscient? God's not going to fall for that. He, now this, this can be a little confusing. Um, so let's, let's talk about what this doesn't mean. Firstly, this does not mean that God is lacking a literal ability to hear. He's omniscient, right? If, if your unsaved Aunt Susie is praying and she's cherishing sin, God knows the content of what she's praying. What this means, though, think about the whole context of the psalm. It's all about God acting, God doing works. It means he's not going to respond. He's not going to respond because he recognizes something false about the cry. He recognizes something false about the prayer, an inconsistency. You see, verse 18 in Psalm 66, it's conveying the idea that the cry to God from the mouth is not fully received or heard by God when there's an inconsistency, especially in terms of harboring sins and unrighteous thoughts and intentions in the heart. That inner man isn't really bowing before the king. You're not really viewing God as God and crying out to him the way you should. You see, and God is asking for us to sincerely cry out to him. You know, God's not a genie. Again, he's not being used by us. Those vows that were made by the psalmist weren't vows, again, because God wanted some goats. God is too big for all of that. And God knows the sincerity of our cries and whether or not we're cherishing sin. And God is more concerned about eliminating sin from the heart than he is about your physical circumstances. And thank God for it. You see, the, the cry of God, it's not just this verbal praise that though it is, it's, it's, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. The offerings and the vows, they're not just dutiful negotiating. God, again, didn't need any of this from the psalmist. Rather, the psalmist is highlighting the heart of personal worship. And it is one that hates sin. It is one that does not regard wickedness. It is one that does not cherish evil. One in which we worship God as God and not as a genie. One in which we conform to his authority and hate sin. 
And, and we, we acknowledge his rule. We're crying out to a king who rules. We're not crying out to a slave to help us out. Opportunities for true personal praise like that, that that comes about in verse 20 only come about truly when the external cry matches the internal heart. The external cry to God must be consistent with what the internal heart is cherishing if it's to be a true cry worthy of God responding to. Imagine a situation, right, where someone approaches a mighty king only when they need a favor but their intention is not to genuinely honor the king. They don't care about the king's glory. They barely acknowledge his authority and the the rulings he's made on what's good and what's right and what's wrong. And without any real respect for the king's position and reverence, they say, hey, king, I need you to help me out. You think that king would respond to that call if they knew what was going on? Why would the king be inclined to grant the request of the cries of those who lack honor and reverence and understanding of who he is? You see, to cry out correctly, friends, requires that in our hearts, our inner man, we recognize evil as evil and good as good. And we cry out to a God understanding who he is, not a God of our own imaginings. And the psalmist highlights this crucial principle. The Lord does not heed our cries when we hold wickedness in our heart. And this is kind of alluded to throughout Scripture, by the way. This isn't something unique to this psalm. Isaiah 1, 15 through 18 kind of mentions that. John 15, 7 alludes to it. 1 John 3, 1 Peter 3, James 5 sort of all allude to this general principle of sin inhibiting our prayers And so we need to take this seriously. We need to truly perceive God's great character and sin's evilness, and that needs to inform the authenticity of of our crying out to God. You see, the difference, again, lies to crying out to God to use God or crying out to God for God's sake because you want him to reveal his glory and salvation and to work in your life. The psalmist acknowledges that God has heard the prayer, recognizes that his cry, he's saying, hey, that cry I made, the vows I made, my heart was sincere. I was not regarding sin in my heart. And that was a genuine expression of repentance and then the rejection of sin. Remember, repentance is turning from sin to God. And the psalmist is saying, that's what was done and the Lord responded. And friends, the Lord can respond to us today when we do the same thing today. You who are cherishing sin, that thing you don't want to let go of, I pray that the Holy Spirit would show you its evilness. That you may cry out for true salvation to the Lord who is due honor. For the Lord who saves Oh, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, friends. Reject that sin. A commentator says this. He says, the final word of gratitude in the text is not for the answered request alone, but for what it signifies, an unbroken relationship with God. And you and I are invited into that. Oh, praise him. And so now, I ask you, would you be able to sing the solo 
if I called on you? Have you experienced this? Have you cried out to him with a sincere heart to save you? Oh, he is a God who saves. That is how he has always worked in human history, and that is how he can work for you today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you right now, God, and we thank you for your work towards mankind, towards, towards us, Lord. Though we can, are not worthy, God, that you have chose to interact with us, and Lord, you have done an amazing work. Oh God, I pray that we would praise you with it through, through transformed lives, God, that we would live new lives, that we would worship you, Oh, and God, that we would have a sincere heart towards, towards you in your workings. Oh, Lord, we love you, and we pray that you would um, just be with us throughout this week and allow this message to take root by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us. We pray this for, for the glory of Christ, that he may be glorified in his bride. We pray this in his name. Amen.